anti-racist, feminist policies, what are they, and how might they be uniquely applicable to the problems we face today? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. What do the Black Lives Matter movement, the horribly unnecessary deaths of tens of thousands from COVID-19, and the fire and flood effects of climate change all have in common? Perhaps what they have in common is the dominance of corporate-focused, technocratic, white male power. It is that case that for too long, positions of power in America have prioritized corporate profits over the public good reinforced economic and racial injustices while greatly exacerbating climate vulnerabilities, which are now being experienced so dramatically. No doubt about it, climate change, the police killings of unarmed black people, and COVID-19 all expose and worsen deep inequities and injustices. Our guest today writes in a Newsday op-ed, quote, low-income communities and people of color suffer the most from our current fossil-fueled energy system and from the climate disruptions that this system has caused, end of quote. And as with any problem, the basis, the root cause, must be first identified before it can really be corrected. In her new book, Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy, our guest today, author Jenny C. Stevens, argues that the key to effectively addressing the climate crisis is diversifying leadership so that anti-racist feminist priorities are central. She says it's time to focus on shifting away from our old extractive economy to one of regeneration. And as with so many problems, we're presented with new opportunities we can both create many new jobs and advance social justice by implementing climate and energy actions, ones that can more effectively address America's great and potentially catastrophic challenges. What's needed, she argues, is identifying and implementing anti-racist feminist solutions. Jenny Stevens, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Bert. Jenny Stevens is the director of the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University, where she's also the Dean's Professor of Sustainability Science and Policy. She's Director of Strategic Research Collaborations at Northeastern's Global Resilience Institute. I like the sound of that, Global Resilience. What a concept. And a member of the Executive Committee of Northeastern's Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies program. She's written on this topic for professional and mainstream media, including Science and the Wall Street Journal. Well, again, thanks for being with us. What sparked you to write this book? What did you see that you wanted to share and what needed to be addressed that had not been? A few questions there. Yes, I've been working on climate and energy uh, for two decades now, for, for most of my career, and I have a science and engineering background, so I've 
I've been kind of trained with a very scientific lens um, in, in terms of looking at the climate problem, climate crisis. And one of the things that I've just been realizing in the past few years is that we have not been paying attention enough and investing enough in social change, social innovation, and social justice. The climate discourse has been very technocratic. Very, most of our investments um, for climate have been about climate science and, and technology, technological innovations to address climate. Um, but we have not, which meant we have not been paying enough attention to the social dynamics, the power structures, and, and connecting the climate crisis with, as you mentioned in your opening, with the huge economic injustices and this widening income and wealth gap um, that is associated also with huge racial disparities and inequities that are just continuing and perpetuated. And it is only what I argue and what I what I believe now is that it, we will only be effective in addressing the climate crisis when we have we are able to see these connections um, and that we are able to address uh, really work toward a transformative change that addresses simultaneously racial justice, um, economic justice, and climate justice. Interesting that you came at this not from a uh, political point of view, but from a a science background. That's that's very interesting that to come up with these answers to the question from that point of view. That that says a lot. Absolutely, I I think too many uh, many scientists have thought about this issue a lot, and a lot of the effort has been to communicate the science better. Um, but communicating the science better isn't going to help us. Um, in the systemic changes that are needed. And I think we need to move beyond uh, the scientific discourse and into uh, a societal discourse and really talking about social change and social justice. I think so, too. Now, the clock, of course, is ticking very loudly toward the election of November 3rd. So much hangs in the balance. What made you feel optimistic about what you call transformative national action on climate and energy by the selection of Kamala Harris and the success in the primaries, at least, of Ilhan Omar and what is known as the the squad. Yes, the new leadership that is emerging um, at multiple levels, national level and uh, local, state level, is really exciting and inspiring. And that's what, in the book, um, I, I elevate the stories of many different leaders who are really acknowledging and, and, and realizing the, the interconnectednesses of all of these, these interconnected challenges. And, you know, we, we are, people are realizing that why are we in this, this time right now where we're completely ill-prepared, right, for the pandemic, the, the climate crisis, and the economic crisis that so many of our communities and, and families are facing. And yet we, we have known, we have the science, we know, we knew about these, these challenges were not unanticipated. And um, the part of the reason for that is the influence of I call in the book the polluter elite, um, mm -hmm. the the very powerful concentration of wealth and power among the one percent um, who who don't want to see transformation, and they've actually been 
actively investing in keeping things the way they are. And we're at a, we're getting to a, a breaking point where we can't, it, it doesn't work, right? We're realizing that our society doesn't work if we just keep things the way they are and continue to um, put kind of corporate profits and in the interests of the, of the wealthy to dictate our national policies rather than putting, having a people first approach. And that's really what I, what I mean when I talk about anti-racist feminist leadership is, is um, leaders who are able to prioritize um, the needs of communities and, and people and families and households and, and, and rather than um, always having this uh, influence of, and, and kind of distortion that has become so widespread of, of really prioritizing corporate interests rather than what people really need. I'm reminded of a New Yorker cartoon. They always say a lot of a bunch of guys, guys, mind you, sitting around a fire in a cave, and it's been the end of the world, clear, and they say, well, it was very profitable, at least for a while, wasn't it? So, <laughs> no question low-income communities and people of color have suffered the most from climate and COVID disruptions. What is it about the underlying system that unsurprisingly causes this result? Why low-income communities and people of color are most directly affected by climate change and the COVID uh, disaster? So we have our systems that have been perpetuating and um, inequities and disparities in so many different ways, whether it's access to housing and healthcare and education. Um, and so that acknowledgement of that is just being revealed um, more explicitly. Many of us, I mean, there's all kinds of research that has shown this for a long time, but because of the, again, the influence of um, the polluter elite in trying to minimize um, the protections um, that government is supposed to uh, provide to people and communities. Mm. Um, the people have, many communities have really been um, left in very vulnerable and marginalized yeah. positions for, for a long time. And again, this, has to do with um, representation. A lot of those communities aren't well represented right. in the in the halls of power, and also worse than that, there's been um, you know a very intentional effort to undermine public trust in government yes. and to really um, and and have us. There's been a very intentional decades long misinformation campaign to deny that climate change is a problem that we need to worry about. Um, and there's been also associated with that also investments to really win minimize worker protections and worker rights and um, all all those confluence of um, priorities in, among the powerful yes. and and many national policies that have reinforced those have left um, so many communities in in really um, vulnerable positions. Yeah, interesting. I'm naive enough to. Uh still believe that the founders of this country, when they said that one of the jobs of government is to provide for the common good, I like to think that that, you know, that most people still believe that. But as you say, the polluter elite clearly doesn't. And they have some amazing power. And I'm thinking about the, the location of incinerators in specific. Incinerators 
and other dirty trash things get specifically located in places of low income and and uh, a lot of uh, people of color in those areas because they don't have the power. So who is this polluter elite and how is it that they have so much power? Uh, and, and I'm not sure what we can do about it, but at least we can start to identify it. So who is this polluter elite that you talk about? So the polluter elite is a general term to um, include, um, you know, powerful, wealthy uh, shareholders of fossil fuel companies and others who are profiting off of the fossil fuel reliance that um, the United States in particular has been uh, perpetuating. And um, again, it's people who have benefited right and from the current system and they've been actively resisting a transformation toward a more renewable based society we have the technology for a renewable based society we have the the opportunity um yet very powerful interests have been resisting it and what's amazing about when we think about an alternative vision of a renewable-based society, once you've leveraged, you've figured out a way to harness uh, the, the wind and the sun mm -hmm. and, the, and, the, and water um, or geothermal energy, it sure. is actual, actually perpetual and free and distributed everywhere. There's, everywhere in the world has some access to mm. a renewable resource of energy. So it really is um, when we are able to move from a fossil fuel-based uh, competitive um, system to a renewable-based society, it opens up all kinds of possibilities of redistributing power and ownership and who is profiting and who is being excluded and or included mm -hmm. in our, our energy systems. And this that's the idea of energy democracy, yeah. um, which is a, an a social, growing social movement and a, and a way to frame this transformation from a fossil fuel-based system to a renewable-based system as a way to redistribute power literally and figuratively. Boy, I remember working with the uh, Clamshell Alliance back in the mid-70s, and, you know, all these answers were there. And it, but it's not profitable. As you say, you know, if these solutions are available for free everywhere in the world— well, of course, the people that are profiting from this are going to fight that tooth and nail. And they have the money. They have the money. And they can affect, uh, uh, you know, policy, a politician's policy. But uh, I, I wonder about uh, if people can start to articulate what the alternatives are. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if people can be able to get the government uh, off of this dependence on the polluters that are making so much money from it. How, and, and, you know, decision-making regarding energy and climate policy have, as has been established, clearly dominated by white males focused on short-term financial gain. I wonder what it is about yeah. specifically anti-racist and feminist leadership that makes you think that it would be more likely to act collaboratively on behalf of the greater good. How is it more suited to come up with new and better answers and solutions? So um, 
the idea really is to focus on what do people need for a prosperous and healthy future, uh-huh. right? What yep. do communities need? What do we all need? And concentrating wealth and power in the way that we have in the United States over the last uh, few decades has has clearly not worked for most people, right? Mm-hmm. And it hasn't it hasn't um, embraced. Uh, a positive future for people. We look at the youth in particular right now, you know, the sunrise movement. um, And I I have two daughters myself who are 19 and 21. Hmm. And I see the youth um, who are really scared about the future. Right. And, and they have good reason to be. So there's also a generational um, concern going on here um, and, and a generational justice issue. Whereas, uh, when we look to the future, um, what what young people are worried not just about um, the climate, but they're worried about their own economic viability, right? And oh, yeah. uh, and that's what the Green New Deal, um, which has really um, come come to the fore in large part due to the Sunrise Movement. I, I mentioned in the book Varshini Prakash, who's one of the co-founders of the Sunrise Movement, and they have just been phenomenal in their organization, their inclusive approach and collaborative approach and coalition building to motivate and inspire young people to advocate for um, investments that will help us help that young people look to the future in a more positive way. And I think... Um, you asked also about, um, you know, thinking about the the polluter elite and mm-hmm. how to reconfigure uh, our perceptions of government and the role of government. And I think one of the things that um, a lot of anti-racist feminist leadership is doing right now is resisting the power of the polluter elite. And part of that is calling them out, holding oh. the fossil fuel interests accountable and, and um, you know, calling people out for what has been happening. And then in addition to resisting that, then reclaiming and restructuring what's oh. possible. And that's where, um, you know, especially now with the economic crisis resulting from the pandemic with, um, the climate disruptions of all kinds, um, uh, being exacerbated and the racial inequities and disparities being um, elevated and exacerbated because of the pandemic and climate crisis. We are in a time where we need big public investment. Um, yes. And this is the time where we can shape um, the, those investments to make sure that they are inclusive and um, benefiting the mar- marginalized communities uh, need to be prioritized in the public investments um, so that we can begin to repair the and and rebuild toward a more equitable and, and just future. And one that actually works. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, democratizing decision-making over uh, things that affect climate change and racial inequity. Uh, energy democracy. And our guest today is uh, Jenny C. Stevens, whose new book is Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. And you bring me back to, you know, a discussion that has gone on for a long time. The people who are on the other side of your values and my values say, well, the choice is between the economy and the environment. I don't believe that's true. 
they say that they they argue that well trickle down yeah as if that ever worked it never ever has and yet they keep arguing for it and creation of jobs and the economy is there a choice between you know protecting the environment doing something about climate change and our economy what's the, what's the reality there as far as you can see so it's it's quite clear right now um, that that's a false dichotomy, right? It's not environment versus economy. We need a healthy environment to have a healthy economy, and and vice versa. So um, the the this um, false dichotomy that's been presented for so long that we have to choose one or the other um, is or, you know, choose to prioritize one over the other is, is, is really unhelpful and a simplistic way of, of connecting um, and acknowledging what's happening. So when we realize the economic implications of climate disruptions, for example, or, and we see municipalities and cities and towns and states struggling to figure out how they're going to fund um, recovery efforts after a, either a big storm or the wildfires in California or um, flooding that is increasingly intense and severe in different places around the country. Um, you know, the economic implications of, of the climate crisis are, are huge. Yes. And, and that doesn't even get into the health impacts and the um, other other um, complexities in terms of housing crisis and and you know climate disruptions are also exacerbating um, homelessness and yes. and pe- forcing people to to lose their houses their homes and and move to different places so there are so many um, the disruptions are you know I guess the way we've quantified our economics it has been simplified because a lot of things that really matter don't always get counted in in the <laughs> analysis so um, I think you know I think we're seeing more and more and then with the pandemic as a whole other level of um, reminder of why we need um, strong collective governance and um, attention and investment in communities and healthcare for all and safe housing for everybody. And, um, hmm. you know, the, these are all connected because the, ec- the, the economic crises that are, that's emerging right now is, is going, is so hard to, to, um, recover from. And, uh, unfortunately we have been ill-prepared for this where we are right now, and we have a lot of work to do to rebuild and and restructure. Um, but we also have, because of the disruptive moment we're in, we also have an opportunity yes. ahead of us um, to re reconfigure how we organize things. And if you think about jobs, for example, you know, nuclear power is highly capital intensive, not so labor intensive. Once the thing is built. That's pretty much it. But solar power, you know, I think about building new railroads, high-speed rails with, you know, solar uh, photovoltaic collectors running the show. Uh, just so many jobs could be created by a new New Deal, a, a, a green New Deal. Many more jobs than uh, the current structure of, of that, I'm sure. And the fear of socialism, you know, what you're talking about, 
you know, New Deal kind of stuff, government providing the funding and stuff like that. The Trump administration has been very effective at at uh, trumping up, shall we say, fear of socialism. How would how would you respond if somebody said, "Well, what you're talking about is socialism, and I don't like socialism"? What would you say? Well, I think one one way of reframing is this concept of energy democracy, which is about yes. distributing power, right? And and that's another and that's economic power as well as political power as well as the electrons and the actual uh-huh. electricity that we all. Right. Um, so when we talk about moving away from a fossil fuel based system toward a renewable based system, as you mentioned, all kinds of possibilities for job creation. Um, when we when we're talking about a renewable future, it's not all solar or all wind. Right. If you're on the coastal areas could have tidal or Absolutely. wave mm-hmm. energy inland areas everywhere has potential for geothermal um, and you know, it could be a heterogeneous, locally appropriate, regionally appropriate mix of different renewable energy. And that creates all kinds of opportunities for ownership and sovereignty in, in local communities uh-huh. and households uh, to own or, or be involved in the energy economy. Um, and, and that is a decentralization. Yes. You know, it's, it, it's moving away from the large central power plant that um, feeds everybody their, mm-hmm. their power. Um, and it, it also offers opportunity, you know, there could be some large scale wind and solar installations, and especially offshore wind has a lot of potential oh, yeah. uh, for large scale. So, so it's, it's multiple different scales here no. that we're, we're talking about. And, but the, installation and the um maintenance um maintenance of and you know the the associated organizational and social changes that go along with a distributed renewable energy system have all kinds of possibilities for jobs as you mentioned and um you know i think economic justice is another way to um you know reframe the anti-socialist messaging because if you think about and and you and are explicit about the concentration of wealth and power that has happened over the past few decades um, that isn't good for anybody Um, and we need to counter that in in whatever ways um, we can and um, the you know thinking about redistributing power is another another framing that that can be helpful i would think so <clears throat> one of the things that you know the the right wing uh, at least uh creates their image and their their language is that you don't want centralized power controlling you and i would think the idea of decentralization boy that's an old genuinely conservative uh way of thinking decentralized power that's like that's sort of the opposite of what of what people fear when they hear the term socialism. What they, I think, what they fear about socialism is, you know, some sort of Stalinist uh, thing, which wasn't. Com- it's just plain fascism, really. Uh, that's what they fear, and I, I think I don't know. We have to reframe so much, and there's so much possibility of reframing it, and it's starting to be talked about. People are starting to get this. I do find it uh, interesting that. Uh, <laughs> the first Earth Day was 50 years ago. <laughs> I thought we'd be much farther along in the 21st century than we are now. The effort isn't new. We are nuts starting from scratch. Who who, and what organizations are empowering 
these often marginalized voices and the promotion of climate activism and energy justice? Well, there's a lot going on and a lot of really inspiring organizations and individuals um, who are um, taking a leading role here. Um, so that Jackie Patterson is the director of the Environmental and Climate Justice Program of the NAACP. Uh-huh. And um, the, she's been critical and her team in um, helping Black communities understand how sometimes they have been kind of co-opted and manipulated by fossil fuel industry yeah. interests um, and and elevating the, the health understanding about the health disparities that are related to our fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, then, you know, there's so many... Um, uh, other inspiring leaders, um, including the squad, uh, the the four junior congresswomen who have been elected recently, who have really entered onto the national scene and changed the discourse in so many ways, um, yes. uh, particularly with climate energy and the Green New Deal, but also with housing and our criminal justice system and um, elevating the, the possibilities of having policy that actually um, upholds social justice principles. And again, that's when, when, when the framing in the book about anti-racist feminist leadership, it's really about um, leadership that, and policies that center social justice at the core. And uh, what we see is that when women and people of color who've been historically excluded from uh, positions of power um, are, are, are integrated in and have the, have the space. They have unique life experience and perspective that can help form those policies and develop initiatives and, and policies and programs that, that are really centered on the social justice component. And, and that's what's really needed, and that's what we have not had enough of yes. in, our, in our policies. It does seem like there's been an image that has been uh, promoted that the environmental movement is, you know, white suburban people who uh, have a life of privilege. But it's good to hear about the NAACP getting involved because they, you know, the, the communities of color pay the heaviest price for this stuff. But there's been, there's a problem. And at the same time, obviously, there's an opportunity. And I'm, I'm glad to see that is starting to be done because it's not just, you know, the white privileged people. <laughs> we may be talking about it, but but those that are affected by it, you know, are not the white privileged people, not nearly so much. We don't really feel it. Uh, people of color and low-income communities, they really feel it. Talk about feeling things. You know, we're talking about uh, a, a different approach, uh, diversifying power, why we need anti-racist and feminist leadership on climate and energy. We recently hit 200,000 deaths from COVID-19. 200,000 deaths, just beyond belief, and it's not getting better. That the U.S. response to the pandemic has been terribly inadequate is really clear. We've been just much worse than other countries. Less well-known is the fact that countries led by women have displayed the most effective leadership in managing and actually controlling the deadly spread of the virus. Tell us about that, please. 
Yes, so some may have heard of Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who has been um, recognized as one of the most effective leaders uh, when it comes to the pandemic, and other leaders, uh, countries led by women in Taiwan, Denmark, Germany, um, have been very effective and in managing the, the spread of the virus. And it seems like some of the key features of this this their leadership has been um, you know swift decisive action early on and then communication that is compassionate and empathetic and explaining why there are the strict restrictions that there were that there have been and and then um, you know building direct communication that builds trust so that people can understand why we're all in this together. It's a collective effort, and it's not just about protecting yourself, but it's about protecting your community, your family, and your neighbors as well, and the whole society, right? And mm -hmm. so that seems to be one of the, the critical characteristics of most effective leadership. And on the, on the flip side, we are in a country uh, with leadership that denies that the pandemic is as dangerous as it is. We, the same leadership that denies that we have a climate crisis and the same leadership also denies um, that we have systemic racism. Yes. That is a problem that we need to address. So, so denial of these obvious huge challenges facing society is, is again, a political strategy to keep things the same. Mm -hmm. Because if you tell people, we don't have a, you know, the pandemic isn't that bad, climate change isn't that bad, and we don't have a systemic uh, racism in this country, then we can keep doing what we've been doing and pretend that those issues aren't there. And, and that's, a, you know, clearly that isn't working. And, and, but that's where we are. And so we need leadership that acknowledges um, and um, uh, the problems and the systemic problems. Each of these and are are systemic. So it's, you can't you can't address these problems with small tweaks around the edges or small incremental changes. We actually need deeper systemic change, and that's why you know more transformative politics is what's emerging, um, which, as you pointed out, you know can be criticized for being too radical or too um, something, um, <laughs> but we're getting to the point where it's very clear that that's what's needed because without deeper uh, transformative change, um, we are going to continue to have these, the same problems emerging in just more, uh, more, even more drastic and more uh, dangerous ways. Absolutely. You know, if you want to live, I, I would get involved. <laughs> you know, it's really a question. What does research reveal about the tendencies of men and women in leadership positions to affect to address climate change. So there has been recent research uh, looking at climate policies at the national level in different countries, and the countries that have more uh, women leaders are also have stronger, more ambitious climate policies. So. Uh, that that has been has been clear. Um, I also want to point out that um, the anti-racist feminist leadership that I'm talking about and promoting in this book is not uh, exclusive to women or people of color, right? Uh, white men, many and many do embrace these principles as well. And we need everybody to embrace these principles. It's not um, uh, 
only about representation and um, which is which is also needed. So we need both. We need um, leadership embracing these principles across the board, no matter who's what who um, is is showing up in the leadership spaces. And we also need to really pay attention to and invest in leaders. Um, who who do represent different life experiences and have been in more marginalized um, historically uh, positions uh, in society. So both both are are important. It's long been interesting to me why people who are most badly affected, adversely affected by you know the current uh, power structure. Uh, are most uh, supportive of it. it. But I think, you know, if you present an opportunity for something different, you know, to help us just live, you know, for future generations to be able to just live, you know, I, I, I think we're starting to see some change. They d- denial, you know, it gets them only so far. People are not that stupid, although certainly the Republicans, this is my opinion, have dumbed down education for the last 40 years or so, cut funding, and they're, they're getting what they want. So people don't have critical thinking skills. But you are a student of environmental silence, science and public policy. And as such, you acknowledge you were sort of blind how race and gender were influencing leadership on climate and energy. What uh, changed that? What opened your eyes? Well, so um, through most of my own training and, you know, when I was a student, I, re- I, I was kind of blind to thinking about race and gender. And I didn't realize, like most of my professors were white men um, and um, bringing a, ver- a, a kind of science-based uh, kind of background. And I think what one of the things that um, really changed my made me realize um, some of the distinctions was my own experience going to um, energy conferences. So I, I, a lot of my, my career has been focused on energy technology innovation and, and I go to these energy conferences and, you know, 90, 99, 90 or 95% of the people at the conferences would be men. And the women who were there, um, you know, we would all be doing slightly different research about that integrated some more of the social dynamics of the technological innovations or, and we were interested in kind of a, 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 a kind of different angle. And I think one of the things that I realized is part of that is actually uh, risk perceptions that we all have uh, based on what, whether we, um, you know, our life experience and, and how we've been uh, um, uh, interacting with the world throughout, throughout our lives. And um, there is actually research that shows um, risk perceptions. White males, on average, have, you know, they've have had a more privileged life and, and sometimes don't have, on average, ha- um, have different don't see things as risky, right? Um, as risky as as women do, and as people of color um, in the United States, at least, when because of the different life experiences and and different perceptions of risk. So those kind of a combination of those different things kind of came together for me to really recognize um, that you know that the having 
diversity in in any area um, really brings different perspectives that brings more creative ideas and and that can bring not just more representation but um, more effective innovative thinking right uh, because you're connecting with more different perspectives um, so so that's kind of where where my own um, sense of the the real importance of of bringing diversity to to all different kinds of spaces, particularly the climate and energy space, which has been kind of quite narrowly defined in terms of greenhouse get gas emission reductions and decarbonization and, and these kind of abstract theoretical scientific quantitative um, uh, way of thinking, which which is important and 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 very helpful in terms of assessing where we are in in um, understanding the changes in the climate system, and they also this, these approaches end up being uh, exclusionary to a lot of people mm. because um, you know science and engineering itself is is uh, not everybody has access to um, good science and science education. Um, so, um, you know, the scientific enterprise itself has its own exclusionary and, and systemic racism aspects to it. And yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I just wonder about uh, connecting with, with people on those issues. I, I do think it, it can be done, but not everybody uh, sees that now. You know, it's so much easier to just uh, leave things as they are and not take uh, risks, but uh, the, the, the we spoke a little bit about about nuclear power. You know, some have anchored their hopes for climate change solution to technological fixes. Uh, it's amazing to me how some argue that you know, as we said, in t- capital intensive, centralized, male dominated nuclear energy is part of an environmental energy solution. You you, you believe. You call that climate isolationism, and you know the opposite of that is, is climate democracy. I believe very much in democracy. The name of the show, obviously, keeping democracy alive, as a solution to many different problems. And I like the sound of energy democracy. How? What? What might that look like actually? If we have energy democracy, and how might that appeal to people who may be, uh, you know, skeptical? of what we're talking about here. Yeah, so energy democracy is really a acknowledgement and, and a vision and a, a movement toward a bigger systems change. Um, and, and so nuclear power, as you mentioned, is often thought of as a simple way that we could, you know, provide the power that everybody needs right. without changing very much socially, right? We could uh-huh. still have centralized systems and, 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 you know, that, that is one, one scenario. Um, there are all kinds of risks with nuclear power and obviously the, the environmental community is divided, um, I think on, on the role of nuclear power. Um, but regardless of your view on the role of nuclear power, I think the energy democracy vision is acknowledging that, our energy system is so fundamental to everything from our health, our, you know, transportation, of course, our housing, our manufacturing of stuff, like every, every aspect of society is, it relies on 
power, right? Um, and energy. So energy is fundamental. And if, as we, um, if we are committed to um, a renewable-based future and moving away from fossil fuels, we have the opportunity to re reconfigure what that looks like. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's not synonymous with the technology itself. It's, it's, it's in how we do it. So we could have um, a renewable-based future that still has concentrated wealth and power and a few huge energy companies uh, controlling the politics and, and influencing the policies. Um, or we can have a renewable-based future that is distributed and has multiple different owners of uh -huh. different kinds of technologies in different communities and different regions. And that's the, di the distribution piece. And so, so the point with energy democracy is not which technology is offers the, the most or the best, and, and there's no one technology that's going to um, uh, transform everything, although that's what technological optimists like to think, that there's mm -hmm. one thing. If we just focus on this yeah. one thing, then we'll, <laughs> we'll figure it out. But that's not really the way the world, world works, right? It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. So acknowledging that there's, there's a possibility, depending on how we construct our climate and energy policies and how we connect energy policy to housing policy, economic policy, educational policy, um, you know, it, it has to be integrated and we have to be thinking about um, a, our, a different energy future in every, every dimension of other policy. Um, and then that's when we have this potential to really connect energy transformation with a bigger societal transition toward yes. a more um, equitable future. Yeah, might be a key to open that wonderful door. <laughs> Hope never dies. Uh, uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is, diversif is uh, Jenny Stevens, whose new book is called Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. It seems like most people get the green aspect of what's being called the Green New Deal. But the New Deal component is less clear. I wonder how you think this... Uh, Franklin Roosevelt program applied to the 21st century uh, can focus not only on equitable jobs creation, as we've discussed a bit, but also on reparations for past injustices as well. Yeah, so um, the idea with the Green New Deal is a big public investment, right, that, in, that helps us uh, transition toward renewable green economy and provides that that investment is it will provide jobs and um and economic livelihoods for for communities that have been excluded yeah. so the 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 idea of of reparations and and or acknowledging the mm -hmm. historic systemic injustices for so long, um, we have to acknowledge and, and invest in those communities and, and, and that where things have gotten so bad and, and people have been uh, marginalized for, for, for too long. Um, one example of this is um, in Boston, the, we have a city councilor, Michelle Wu, who has just announced she will be running for mayor oh. of Boston, and she has proposed a Green New Deal for Boston. And part of that um, also involves, as an example, um, 
a free transportation for all. So thinking about the the subway system, the public transit system um, being free um, because, and the justification here is that um, it, it opens up opportunities and it's a, the, the price for public transit is disproportionate, right? Among uh, different communities uh, who, who use it. Um, so um, rather than have public transit be an additional burden that further um, exacerbates economic inequities in the city, if we were able to um, make the transit system free, transportation can be uh, opening up uh, possibilities and, and reducing inequities um, and, and connecting that then with um, clean and, and renewable-based uh, options. For transportation, so that's so that's one example of sure. um, the the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is emerging, you know, different. It's a framework within which a lot of different policies um, can are uh -huh. being sure. uh, developed um, at the national level, and then also at, at state and local levels. People are thinking about okay, what do, what will this what could this look like for for our uh, community or our city? Interesting. Yeah. So there's there's local. Uh, re answers as well. And we've seen that many times. Some issues need to be done with federal money at the federal level. A lot of it can be done locally. It's, it's a mix. And, you know, America loves its car culture. We're individualistic. We can go anywhere, anytime. Uh, but as you point out, the transportation sector in the U.S. is responsible for nearly 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it's, as you mentioned just now, it's also the site of significant inequities in access. So how might we re-envision our transportation system to both serve the environment and social justice? I think what you were talking about, uh, that candidate in Boston uh, has some interesting ideas. So that, uh, you know, it's hard to get people out of their cars. We like the ability to just go around as we want to. But maybe it doesn't have to be either or. Yeah, so transportation, one of the things that, um, you know, just in the past few months with the pandemic, um, our options that for mobility have changed and um, and shifted as, as many of us haven't been traveling as much or haven't been commuting as much. Um, so transportation is a very dynamic space uh, where I think there's a there's a lot of a lot of possibilities for for changes. Um, as as you mentioned, you know we have a, we've had a long history of promoting cars and roads and car oh, yeah. culture and keeping keeping you know gasoline prices low, um, and that's been very much connected to fossil fuel interests, right? Um, oh, yeah. That want to continue to perpetuate um, the car culture in the United States, and and so it's very deep, as you mentioned, in terms of our you know our national identity, our our sense of independence, and our um, uh, you know, desire to, to be able to travel around uh, wherever we need. I think some of um, what we're, some of us are experiencing during the pandemic is that we are, many of us can function more locally um, and uh, connect um, 
you know, in, in, within communities, um, with, without as much travel and transportation. Uh-huh. Um, so one of the things that, that kind of, um, coming back to kind of a larger theme of the book is that in transportation, so much of the emphasis has been on technological innovation, particularly like the Tesla or the electric vehicle, um, and which are, you know, great innovations. And I think there's a big space for electrifying, um, cars and trans transit in general, uh, for sure. And we haven't been paying enough attention to the non-technical transit related innovations, right? Oh. Um, whether it be, um, other ways that, you know, to localize things so people don't need or want to travel, um, individual mobility as much and, or, you know, providing better, uh, opportunities for walking and biking and, and other kinds of trans, tra- public transit and, and sharing of, um, sharing. transportation options. That's interesting. Yeah, those, sharing. So all That's, of those. Pardon me for interrupting, but having kids okay. myself, you know, the idea of sharing, what a concept, you know, we tell our kids to share and not fight over things. And, you know, when I think about, you know, each household having, for example, a, a gasoline-powered uh, uh, snowblower or things like, you know, why not have it for the neighborhood? Share it. Things like that. What a concept. I, th- I think that's more feminist-oriented than male-oriented. You know, men, I hate to be too reductive, but it's like, no, this is mine. I control it. <laughs> and, and women being mothers, you know, I mean, sharing. Th- these, one could say these are the worst of times, and, you know, the the we've gone down in fossil fuel usage, which may be a place to start. There's maybe this is a time starting to make real change. There's there's dread and optimism. Boy, it's hard to have both, but they're both there for sure. You you offer specific action steps we can all take to harness our collective recovery from the pandemic and the energy crisis and the climate crisis to successfully build a more just and sustainable future. I wonder if you could share some of these before we uh, head out of here. Yeah, so um, I think one thing we can all acknowledge is we all have leadership capacity in whatever organizations, communities we are associated with and involved in. So I think we can all lead to act and inspire other people to lead like and part of that is just being engaged um helping making sure people are voting and engaging and directly with your own elected officials um i think we also need to be acknowledging and advocating for bigger system systemic changes um and uh we also need to be understanding and unlearning racism and sexism right talking about those issues and and acknowledging where um, we have uh, these where and why we have the inequities and disparities that, that we see. Um, I think then we also all have an opportunity to advocate for local community renewable energy in our own p- places where we live. Um, and, and we can also all explore cooperative models and other models of economics um, that, and, and organizational structures that um, we haven't necessarily thought of mm-hmm. um, in terms of some some changes and and um, cooperative model of business is is something that um, is is growing in some places mm-hmm. and there's a lot of opportunities there and then I guess finally I would just say you know 
given the divisions that we have in this country, um, listening and learning from each other and really trying to speak to kind of this people's first, like what do people need and how are we going to envision a positive future, an equitable future for everyone? Um, we, we really need to prioritize that these kind of principles of kind of a people's first, um, Mm -hmm. and, and acknowledging the, the dangers of, um, promoting too much of the support for corporate culture that we've, that we've developed in this country. I would say I think there's uh, great possibilities here. There really are. Again, it's the worst of times and best of times. And uh, it's it's starting to happen. And I will tell people who haven't been involved in making political change, it's fun. It really is fun. It's like, you know, once you do it and you make some actual change, you want more. I highly recommend getting involved in local politics if you possibly can. It's, it's really a lot of fun. And it's been fun talking to you, Jenny Stevens. The book is called Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist, Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. So much possibility. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bert. Great conversation. Thanks. Democracy has come to the USA.